Hi everyone, Duncan Green here. Did anyone notice that I didn't do a roundup last week? Um, probably not. Anyway, the reason that was that I had COVID. Like everybody else I know, it seems to be, it's now become positively passe. Um, I had COVID, uh, it was like a sort of reasonably bad dose of flu, but I was coughing and spluttering and in no mood to try and talk my way through 20 minutes of blog posts. The blog itself carried on regardless. It's like a sort of super tanker. It just churns along. Um, but uh, I took last week off. So now I have a double issue to, to uh, catch up on. So this will be an extra long one. And then on uh, and then I'm going on holiday for a week. So that'll be a chance to fully recover, although I'm already feeling a whole lot better. So let's get on with the show and talk about uh, the posts that have been up in the last two weeks. First one was the links I liked. Um, the link I would probably pick out this time was a really good lecture by an old friend of mine, Irungu Houghton, another ex-famer, as we call ex-Oxfam people, who gave a really good lecture at uh, the LSE on human rights organising in Africa during a global pandemic. And these days, you know, all of our lectures are both uh, watchable as videos, listen listenable to as podcasts. And Irungu also has a book out on uh, democracy and citizenship and the Kenyan constitution. So I recommend that you catch up with some of these lectures if you have time. Um, the next post was I'm finally allowed to talk in public about a really interesting new project I'm involved in. Um, it, it's designing a, a mixed face-to-face -face and online course training senior leaders uh, in the UN, INGOs and Red Cross system uh, to try and help them improve their influencing skills. Um, so it's a, it's a, it, with, let me talk you through it. It's called, it's part of something called the Global Executive Leadership Initiative, GELI. Um, and uh, it's aimed at people who are in what, what are called humanitarian country teams or UN country teams um, at national level around the world. And we're trying to get to about 300 people over the course of the next three years. And the idea is to help them be a bit more intentional about how they influence. Well, somebody described it when we did some initial interviews. Somebody said, well, you know, you can get very senior in the UN system by being good at tents and blankets. But then suddenly you have to try and stop the Saudis from bombing Yemen. And, you know, that's just a different set of skills. So we're trying to get people to do a lot of the things. Actually, I, you know, I teach on the LSE course, but at a sort of slightly higher level, understanding context, how to understand a network uh, of stakeholders relevant to your influencing goal, um, how, and how do you move from understanding the context to picking a set of strategies and trying them out. And the, the focus of this course is very much on communications, both public and private. And we've got a fantastic team. So some of the, some of the sort of things that characterize the course, these are senior people and they don't take kindly to being PowerPointed so it's got to be a 80-20 split between practice and theory, with the 80 being the practice. And that'll largely be around, be around case studies, people sharing stories and talking to each other, experiential learning. So basically, I get to sit in the room and listen to lots of really fascinating war stories. Um, they'll also have a, we'll be asking them to bring a personal project, um, which tackles something they face in their, their work life. Uh, and I think, you know, with my LSE hat on, it's going to be like amping up our influencing course to this to a, a more senior level. Um, and it'll be very interesting because there'll be about, you know, I, I work out about 500 years of collective experience in each 
of the rooms, there'll be 25 people um, uh, on the course, and they'll each have about 20 years of experience. So we're gonna, um, yeah, we're gonna learn a lot, and as I hope are they. Um, and I'm keen, obviously, as an Oxfammer, to get lots of INGO people in this, not just because we think it's gonna be a great course, but also because it's gonna be a fantastic networking opportunity with other people. So I won't keep hyping it, uh, the details of the course and how to apply are on the uh, on the blog, um, and a, a link through to the webpage for the for the whole Geli system. The second post, now that I'm allowed to go public, was to actually run a draft uh, resource guide uh, past people, which was, you know, all the publicly available influencing toolkits. There are a lot of them about, and I've gone through them all try to select the ones I think are the most useful and try to identify what they're most useful for. Some are better for insider work, some are better for public campaigning, some are better for building coalitions, some are better for particular sectors like water or education. So I put a big, uh, uh, put my current set of um, uh, resources up there and not surprisingly people have come in with some really great additions so I'm now going to have an even longer um, resource list to give to participants on the course but I'm also yeah it's available publicly so that's nice so thanks for people who chipped in there right enough about Gelly uh, the next uh, uh, post uh, on uh, the blog was from Oxfam's Nicole Walsh and Anne May Ban and it's how to change narratives to build hope and solidarity to, uh, with lots of examples, which is why I really liked it. So I'll just sort of read out uh, uh, what they said. In our work to strengthen and support civic space worldwide, we often see that certain narratives are used to undermine the work of activists. Narratives, the collection of stories we intentionally or unintentionally use to set our experiences and observations in a larger context of meaning and shape our understandings of the world, are like layered currents Sometimes only a part of the narrative is visible, the tip of the iceberg. But beneath the surface, it is connected to deeply held and shared social norms and values, history and culture, which are often invisible and difficult to grasp. <clears throat> Very nicely written, I thought that. Narrative, but this is about how you change narratives. Narrative change work is about hope and play. Narrative work finds creative ways to move people to new ideas and experiences, tapping into feelings of hope envisioning possible futures. It's about relationships and understanding, a process of mutual learning. It's about listening. It's most powerful when you reach out to those you don't necessarily already, already agree with to find shared values and meet in the middle. It's about co-creating, a constant iterative process. It's about showing, not telling. So narratives need to be embodied and solidarity is best expressed through concrete actions. Moving beyond strategic communications, the end goal of narrative change work is a deeper level of social change based on power analysis and social norm change. So with that introduction, they then went into some nice examples. So I'll, I'll, from Bulgaria, South Africa and Colombia. So the importance of hope shifting perception in Bulgaria. For Fine Acts, a global creative studio for social impact, hope is the thread that cuts through all their work. Research about what makes people care reveals that opinions don't change through more information, but through compelling, empathetic experiences. Yana Bura Tavanier explained, and, and the, um, uh, Nicole and Anne May were reporting back from a big conference uh, where this uh, Yana Bura 
Tavania explained uh, what she was doing. She explained that if our messaging triggers fear and guilt, people will shut down. We need to communicate hope and opportunity to engage people and gather the positive and creative energy for change. Fine Acts applied this in their Love Speech campaign, which engaged, engaged 35 leading Bulgarian artists in a vast campaign against hate speech, which has been on the rise, particularly against Roma, LGBTQI plus people and refugees. The campaign featured a series of urban art interventions, a participatory installation of viral online video and large free-to-use collection of illustrations and it reached more than one million people, raising awareness of the implications of hate speech. Jana's top tip, don't let trying to do things the perfect way hold you back. Experimentation is good. Try, learn, adapt, learn and adapt again. Couldn't agree more. Second one from South Africa, the importance of play. In order to be effective, narrative change work needs, needs to understand the interest and psychology of those whose perceptions you want to change and tap into culture, humour, history connect with the audience, to connect with the audience on multiple levels. This also requires a certain amount of playfulness, not always an NGO's strength, in particular when serious and demanding human rights activism can lead to burnout or feelings of powerlessness. Ishtar Lakhani illustrated this creative and playful mixed approach through the example of raising awareness on the rights of sex workers in South Africa. The Sex Workers Education and Advocacy Task Force, or SWET, chose to focus on challenging the specific image of sex work pushed out by Hollywood blockbuster movies. By instead showing the multiple working identities of sex workers as mothers, carers, often combining different jobs, the campaign demonstrated that sex work is not the only work that sex workers can do. <clears throat> For example, Sweat also seized the opportunity of the 2019 South African national elections to deploy their creative activism and start a fictitious sex worker-led political party called SWAG. Through political party posters, convincing social media coverage and a campaign video with the online one-liner Your Rights, Your Freedom, Your SWAG, they gained attention and public space to talk about the rights of sex workers and managed to get the two largest opposition political parties to include the issue in their election manifestos. I presume SWAG stands for Sex Worker Action Group or something like that. Ishtar's tip, changing, changing the language you use can sometimes create bridges to unexpected allies and new ways of looking at the issue. You can then jointly build a new narrative. Third example from Venezuela. The importance of relationships and showing not telling. And this is some work on human rights. In Venezuela, two things came together to change the way a team of pro bono lawyers did human rights outreach to communities. The team had already been facing narrative attacks labelling human rights proponents as anti-Venezuelan and had been working on a series of events that would materialise rights, that, sorry, that would materialise rights in ways beyond their traditional legal expression by offering opportunities for sports, music and entrepreneurial training, for example. With the onset of COVID, the need to creatively rethink how they reach community members became even more urgent. So they held upcycling workshops to make PPE face shields, began partnering with community kitchens and formalised a position for community creative community activism. These creative approaches resulted not only in more effective engagement, but also prompted reflections on what it means to be lawyers and how they might give a face to human rights that resonates more with the lived experiences of the communities they work in. 
And Lucas's tip, uh, Lucas is one of the lawyers, appeal to people's ideal collective future to show how much the values underlying these visions of an ideal society align. Narrative success depends on making relationships and experiences the ends of your project, not just the means. At the end's the first week, and now we barrel into the second week with another links I liked, and just hats off to my Oxfam colleagues at Oxfam International, who got a very big fish indeed for an interview on their excellent Equals podcast. Gordon Brown, former British Prime Minister, current sort of uh, great and good global um, uh, justice advocate, came on the podcast to talk about inequality and the pandemic, and I thoroughly recommend that that, that interview. Um, Second post of the week was by a set of researchers from different countries in the global south. Veronica Amarante, Nisha Arunatilake, Ronel Berger, Ayanda Han, he's not from the south, Ana Lucia Kasuf and Lucas Ronconi. And it's about northern institutions and how they dominate international development research. And uh, uh, it's quite a dense piece, so I'm going to just read it out. The international community has long accepted that development needs to be locally owned and that international support and cooperation need to facilitate leadership by local actors. Yet it is increasingly noticeable that development research is lagging behind in this respect. As we raise the questions of access of researchers based in the Global South to the field of development, we also have to ask what knowledge are development practices built on? International development research studying by and large the Global South is dominated by scholars based in the Global North, far away from the realities they seek to understand. Without a thorough understanding of the local context, helpful policies and initiatives can have unintended and possibly detrimental consequences. Publications in international development studies journals are overwhelmingly by scholars based in the Global North. Our analysis of top development journals and that's like the top 20 over 30 years, this is a serious bit of number crunching here, revealed that researchers based in the South contributed to only just over a quarter of the publications. Northern scholars tended to publish more in, high, uh, in higher ranked journals and are cited more and are overrepresented in editorial teams. And there is no evidence of improvement in this bias over time. <clears throat> Despite the uh, growth in collaborative publications, the prevalence of northern-based authors has increased in absolute terms. The number of researchers originating from the Global South working in policy institutions in the North may be increasing, but this brain drain helps perpetuate the dominance of northern institutions. That's a really interesting question there. I've always been, you know, been asked it. You know, is a, do you count Amartya Sen when he's you know, master of Trinity College, Cambridge in the UK, do you count him as a southern voice, a northern voice, a hybrid voice? You know, what happens when so many of the voices from the global south, in order to get career development, career progression, end up at northern institutions? It must have some impact, I think. A growing number of studies are demonstrating this continued marginalisation. And then it goes for a big number crunch on this. Um, but why is the geographic location of the author an issue? Why shouldn't Northern donors predominantly work with and support development studies institutes in their own country, especially when access to resources for conducting quality research is limited in many countries in the Global South? Funders may look for what they consider the best evidence to inform their policies or to support low-income countries. Northern research institutions also partner with Southern research institutions, and funders have encouraged this. 
We believe, and these are the authors, we believe that the balance needs to tilt towards opportunities for southern-based researchers. Southern-based, not just southern. First, there is an intrinsic reason, the need to ensure access to research based in the south and make the field of development studies more representative and thus contribute to decolonizing the field. But then there is the instrumental reason. Local researchers know local context better and thus are more likely to carry out valid, useful research. Concerted action from governments and donor organisations to support locally based researchers is essential. Money talks. Without it, the current power and influence structure will endure. In our analysis of participation in policy formulation, we found that southern research systems provide few incentives to participate in policy debates and little space for evidence use. Research training pays little attention to dissemination and communication. Difficulties in publishing research limit the visibility of researchers from the Global South, in turn reducing our opportunities to participate in local and international policy debates. So while researchers in the North are being funded and encouraged to have impact, researchers in many Southern institutions are in, like it was here sort of you know, a couple of decades ago, they're just on the publications and teaching treadmill and they're not having impact, which means no visibility, which sounds like a real problem. Given the very slow change, excuse me, need a slurp here, <coughs> still recovering. Given the very slow change in publication trends and policy processes, a big push is needed to make development research more representative. So I totally agree with that. Next post was by two uh, women, Mary Mwangi and Brenda Wangari, who are involved in supporting entrepreneurs. I don't do nearly enough about the private sector. Um, I think on the blog, and these are this is, these are um, things called enterprise support organisations uh, in Africa and elsewhere, and they were writing about some recent research they've done. So I'll uh, give you the gist here. In recent years, we have seen more capacity building support directed towards locally led enterprise support organisations or ESOs, with names like accelerators, incubators, seed funds, and consulting practices. These ESOs are at the front line providing critical business development research uh, services sorry, to local entrepreneurs. In Africa and many developing regions, such entrepreneurs are key drivers of job creation, innovation and social and economic development. However, the challenge is that many ESOs are themselves small and growing businesses, facing the same challenges as those they support, such as attracting and retaining the talent they need, understanding the market and their position, and designing programs and services with the user in mind. So this post came about through a colleague of mine, Nicholas Koloff, who now runs a thing called the Algidius Foundation. And they've been working uh, uh, over seven years, supporting over 50 ESOs active in East Africa and Central America to, uh, to track the performance of the businesses it supported and report on changes. Um, and in addition, they, they did some other bigger sort of work um, uh, uh, working at a global level. Through these efforts, Argidius Foundation identified five critical factors that distinguish impactful business development services from the other kind. These practices were codified in the SCALE framework. SCALE provides a set of evidence-based good practices that improve the effectiveness of business support programs. And SCALE stands for selection, which is all about getting the right intervention for the right businesses at the right stage of its development. Charging, so this is controversial. 
Charging for business development services supports effective selection because businesses will only pay for services that they see value in. Third characteristic is addressing problems. You would not believe, the authors say, the amount of business training that simply follows a curriculum of what people think, often rightly, uh, businesses should know, delivered to a fixed sequence and, then, and, that, and, and has no discernible effect. So this is the capacity building sort of horror story. People learn best by solving problems. So if you address those problems, you're going to get better results. Evaluating. Hmm. I seem to have lost the E here, never mind. Uh, the L. Evaluating enterprise performance is the fourth characteristic. Most ESOs collect data, lots of it. More often than not, these data are collected to fulfill reporting requirements to donors. While I might keep their funders happy, this does not help ESOs learn about and improve their own performance. And this brings us to our last characteristic, leading by example. Hmm, so the spelling's a bit off here. Um, the L comes after the E. Leading by example, ESOs are often wounded healers. God, I love that phrase. Wounded healers, like the enterprises they support, they need to help, they need help to overcome the barriers to their own growth. So they've got a heal, um, healer, heal thyself kind of thing. Um, so very nice, and then some nice examples in the blog post, which I won't go into. And then the final post uh, of this marathon session. How do you set up an effective network? So I was chatting to a friend of mine who was involved in UK um, uh, activism, who was thinking of, yeah, who was wondering about setting up a network and said, well, what should I read? Yeah, what are the models here? And I thought, well, actually, I'm not sure. But I have some ideas. So... <clears throat> You know, uh, he asked, what's the best reading around? He's a bit suspicious, he said, of all the, you know, stakeholder mappy, retrospective, look, you know, backward-looking analysis of change. He's looking for sort of practical, proactive, five steps to doing X, Y, Z. Um, uh, you know, which sounded like a painful critique of what I talk about all the time. But anyway, never mind. I didn't take it personally. And I thought about it and said, well... These kind of questions are often both fun and a bit alarming, and I usually realise that I can't answer them directly, but, but, but I do have some sort of adjacent issues. You know, that classic politician reply of, well, I don't know about that, but what I do know is, but I think it's reasonable if there's a lot of overlap. Um, so what I said was, some thoughts. First, work on an overarching narrative that boosts identity and binds people together. You, you, you've got to have a bunch of things which pull a network together, keep it together, help it build trust, and relationships. One of them is the narrative. Second one is shared rituals and language. You know, look how good, how well rituals do for faith networks, um, but also for, you know, political parties, for trade unions. They each have their own language. They each have their own set of rituals. Regular contact, obviously, between men network members around shared tasks. And if you can include in those shared tasks some easy wins, that's really good for morale. Hey, we're getting somewhere. We get, we're getting stuff done. This is really good. And celebrate any wins like mad because you don't get that many and they're really important in terms of building morale. Now, more controversially, do you need a common enemy? Um, I think sometimes a common enemy can be a big help um, uh, <clears throat> in binding people together. And then in a good sort of Leninist sense, you need a small core group of more intentional conveners who are behind the network, thinking about how it's developing, they have the, they're spending a bit more time and energy thinking about its, its development. Otherwise, people will only think about the network, you know, the hour before the meeting, and you won't get a real sense of dynamism. So, you know, who's going to be in your core group?
<coughs> and so I gave this to my friend who said, well, the name does matter. Calling it a network lends itself to a lot of systems analysis, mapping, etc., uh, which can be unhelpful in providing clear steps, whereas your five points give a rather clear set of tactics for how to strengthen relationships. Um, and then they said, <clears throat> one big question is how centralized versus consensus based to be. My go-to, this is his go-to, not mine, is to try and build a democratic mandate for the former as a way to ensure effective delivery and collective buy-in. And at that point, I had a little light bulb. Ah, yes, I know what you're talking about. Um, uh, because there's another network called Crisis Action, which has a really interesting model. It uh, was set up uh, to do humanitarian campaigning around crises, famines, conflicts, and so on. Uh, and it signed up a lot of NGOs uh, and individuals working in the same field uh, on, a on a particular model. When a crisis erupts, it puts out a call to see who wants to sign up to an opt-in coalition. And you don't have to. And it doesn't waste time and water down the language by trying to build a, co build a consensus. It says, who's in? We're going next week on X. And that's worked really well because the people who are in are in. And the people who are out have been consulted. They don't feel you know, left out. They've just decided that for one reason or another, they're not up for taking part in this particular campaign. So I put a link to their handbook uh, on building coalitions up on the blog, which I think is really useful. We use it on the LSE course on activism. And then I added a couple of other thoughts. So another way of looking at it is that people respond to networks in two basic ways. They either think, oh, wow, I can geek out on this. And these are the people who go in for social network analysis. There's a, I, I linked to Eric Burlow. Uh, taking apart my favorite stakeholder example of a stakeholder map on Afghanistan. But you could, so, so you can try and break it down, get in control of it, understand how it works, find the nodes, crack, crack the code. Or you can actually say, <coughs> networks are complex, largely unknowable. So let's, let's dance with the system. Let's think about the enabling environment. It's like putting fertilizer on a garden without knowing too much about what's going to grow there. <clears throat> and that's the stuff I prefer, you know, embracing uncertainty, ambiguity, dancing with the system. <coughs> oh, dear. Um, and one other point I forgot to mention to him. <coughs> excuse me. I'm just coming to the end just as well. My voice is giving out. The breadth of network versus the breadth of the topic. I have a kind of in instinctive th rule of thumb that if the topic is narrow... The network can be broad. So, you know, when I worked on the Ethical Trading Initiative, the topic was specifically um, labor rights in, in supply chains for garment manufacturers and supermarkets. And we had a broad constituency of corporates, trade unions and, and NGOs, and that went really well. I think if you have a broad topic, <coughs> you need a narrow set of stakeholders involved. Otherwise, you just have a terrible talking shop. Anyway, uh, I, I then left it over to other people to chip in and I better stop talking now because my throat is completely gone. So I will be back in a week and I'll be totally recovered and I'll talk to you in two weeks. Bye. <coughs> See, I'm still ill. Bye. <coughs>